Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Dr. Phil Ford. Phil is an associate professor of musicology at the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. He's the author of the book Dig, Sound and Music in Hip-Hop Culture, A Cultural History of Hipness from the 1930s through the 1960s, the long-running blog Dial M for Musicology, and various essays that have appeared in Representations, Journal of Musicology, Musical Quarterly, and elsewhere. With co-host J.F. Martell, he is also working on a book entitled Weirding to be published by Strange Attractor Press. Phil is a pianist, rabid, Wagnerite, crap Buddhist, degenerate fight fan, and avid consulter of the I Ching. He wishes that just for once he had an enthusiasm that he didn't have to apologize for to explain, his, to, explain to his academic peers. Of course, he is also the co-host of the podcast Weird Studies, which, as I've mentioned in this episode, is one of my top three favorite podcasts, and I've done an episode with the other co-host, J.F. Martell, last year, discussing the wonderful book by James Hillman, A Terrible Love of War. Now, in this episode with Phil Ford, we discuss Nick Lowe's song, The Beast in Me. When I first reached out, uh, to Dr. Ford 
and asked him what we should talk about in terms of masculinity, he threw out this suggestion, and it was a great one. Some of the episode highlights include exploring the UFC and the recent Dana White controversy. I think we have some very strong feelings about this. Uh, We look at Carl Jung's notion of the shadow, Ursula Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea, Howe and Sidra Stone's voice dialogue therapy. Phil has some wonderful insights on how to do that and gets into his own psychology, his own practice. He explores his own experience with Zen Buddhism. We dig into alchemical transformation and how that applies to working on our psyche. We look at the universal religious impulse and so much more. This is a really powerful episode. I think you'll love Phil's voice. He has a wonderful radio slash podcast voice, and he's very passionate. He has these marvelous rants, and I don't mean rant in a bad sense. I mean rant in a beautiful sense where he just lets out all these wonderful ideas and connects all these concepts to give us a sense of what the beast in me actually means. I know that I was challenged. I'm tempted to sometimes just deny the beast in me or to sometimes just give into it like we talk about in this episode. But after talking to Phil, I'm wanting to figure out how to develop a healthier relationship to it. I want to be aware of it and I want to relate to it. Guys, I really hope that you are challenged by this episode and that you'll find at least one person in your life, whether it's your spouse, whether it's a coworker, whether it's one of your friends, go out, have a beer, have a glass of wine, have a cup of coffee, and talk about these ideas. Figure out ways to relate to the beast that resides inside of you. Now, guys, as always, I want to encourage you to continue the conversation. So, Phil, thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast, Therapy for Guys. I'm, I'm delighted to connect with you and to have this conversation today. Likewise. Yeah. So I, I know you don't know this, but one of the things that uh, maybe selfishly I wanted when I started my own podcast was to one day interview some of the hosts in my like top three favorite podcasts. And Weird Studies is up there. Uh, I, I'm sure I've listened to every episode, some more than once. And uh, I had the opportunity to interview JF uh, last year. And yeah, it's it's really cool to finally get to see you and talk to you. And I'm excited about our conversation. Well, thank you very much. Well, it's a delight to, to, uh, to be talking to you today. Yeah. And I've got to say, I don't want to make you blush, but 
you have the incredible podcast voice. And, yeah. and, and, and I just love how many times and just the way that you say motherfucker. So I'm hoping I'm hoping that at some <laughs> see point, if I can work it in today. Yeah, please. Like that's going to be my goal <laughs> is for you to at least say it once. And I think that'll make me happy and, and probably a lot of my listeners, too. <laughs> Well, if we if we are, uh, end up talking about um, the thing that has really been um, boiling my blood recently, Ooh. which is the all the stuff going on with Dana White of the UFC. So, for those of you who don't know me from my podcast or anywhere else, I'm a huge fight fan, um, and, um, and and it's hard for a civilized human being to live down being a fight fan. Um, but lately, uh, the behavior from um, particularly the uh, UFC, its fans and its managers, its its executives has been so execrable um, that I can't even handle those motherfuckers anymore. Yes. I can't even handle those motherfuckers. <laughs> and, and if we're going to be talking about masculinity and the beast in me, which was the theme that I suggested to you. Yes. Um, yeah, we got we, we we got a few things to talk about today. OK, awesome. Motherfucker. Now, there you go. There you go. So can can we just can we just go there with the UFC? I'll be honest. I, I'm not that. I know what it is. I have a lot of male clients that that love that shit and get into it and even do it themselves. Not at a at a high level, but what what's but been train. yeah what what's been bothering you about it? Well, I. Okay, so I feel like I need to set this whole thing up. Like, why did I just suddenly, before you had a chance to finish your introduction, <laughs> before we really got settled, why did I just um, hijack this conversation? Well, I'll, I'll get to analyze you in a minute, things. but no. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's funny because for me, um, I, I was not always a fight fan. So. Mm. At one point, uh, in fact, I can remember one of the worst New Year's Eves I've I've experienced, and that is saying something. Because I think New Year's Eve is basically a bullshit holiday, and mm. and it annoys me. Um, and it actually comes I up in the song, out. right? That's true. It does. It does. I didn't even think of that. But I was thinking about like how um, this one time I was stuck with a bunch of people I didn't know at a New Year's party, and I was located by the TV that was playing. Mixed martial arts. This would have been around 2000. So this is the stone ages of mixed martial arts. Gotcha. And I remember just being like, this is torture. <laughs> I cannot imagine what kind of barbarian, what kind of knuckle dragging, nose picking savage could possibly enjoy this. And then about 15 years later, I was in the midst of a um, terrible two year depressive episode. Mm. Um, terrible and it was that episode that really forced me to get real about my mental health um and uh there was a point i I don't know it's often said that um the uh the opposite of um uh, of joy is not sadness but apathy Mm. uh and and that was how i felt you know all of the enthusiasms and passions that i felt for things in my life had just completely dried up. And I remember, um, I didn't really know anything about depression at that point, but like kind of groping my way blindly for some kind of way out. And, uh, in the middle of this, and this is, it turns out this is not unusual. Uh, people finding combat sports when they're at their lowest and finding there's something that kind of pulls them out of themselves. Mm. Um, 
It was right around the time that Chris Weidman had very unexpectedly knocked out Anderson Silva. And uh, I don't expect everybody to understand what that means, but it was like a famous surprising turn of events in mixed martial arts. And I'd somehow heard about it and saw a clip on social media. And then that just pulled me down a rabbit hole. And I didn't know why I wanted to watch this stuff that formerly I'd considered awful. Um, but I knew that it's sort of like if you're cold, you go in the direction of where it's warm. Sure. Uh, it almost it's not intellectual. It's sort of more instinctive. And I got really, really super into the fight game, started training boxing myself. Um, and uh, like a lot of people who come into like martial arts gyms, for me, the practice of um, – you know, the sweet science, not just brawling, not, not violence, but like, you know, an organized and, um, structured and disciplined skill, sure. uh, was, uh, immensely important to me in, in developing whatever kind of like, um, autonomous strength and structure mm. I needed to kind of deal with my stuff at that time. And this is like a decade ago. Right. Um, so what, the fight game isn't just about entertainment, although it certainly is that. I have this sort of feeling, I have a, I feel a certain kind of way about it. And anybody who's followed the fight game for five minutes knows that it's um, a terrible, dirty business and has been since the 18th century, since the days of the London prize ring. I was no, I was not under any illusion about that. But what has happened just lately is that um, Dana White, the capo di tutti capi of mixed martial arts, the president of the UFC, um, a deeply petty and authoritarian man, good friend of Donald Trump's, oh, wow. um, and um, and somebody who I have never uh, had much of a partiality to. On New Year's Eve, he and his wife were at a nightclub in Mexico and got in a physical fight where Dana White, who's built like a brick shithouse, a big, <laughs> big middle-aged guy, is about exactly my age, okay. and his wife, who looks like she's uh, 90 pounds soaking wet, trading slaps, but needless to say, not exactly <laughs> what you might call a fair exchange. He was caught on video slapping his wife, not once, oh, but repeatedly. Man. And what has happened is that everybody just hid out and waited for it to blow over. Mm. So ESPN doesn't want anything to get in the way of their money coming in. And Endeavor, which owns the UFC, doesn't want anything to mess with their money. And Dana White is used to being it's like, who are these peasants, these little people who demand that I should pay some kind of mm. price for beating my wife in public. Hmm. And um so Wow, he, he is a motherfucker. Like, <laughs> yes, he is. And yesterday gave I didn't see this, but gave a um a press conference where he announced that no, he would receive no sanction either from ESPN, Endeavor, or anyone else. Um because he now has to be known as a guy who slapped his wife, and isn't that punishment enough, really? Mm. And it's not just that. It's also that the MMA um, community, such as it is, 
Uh, and not all MMA fans are complete assholes. I need to point this out. Sure. I would like to think that I am not a complete asshole. At best, a partial asshole. Yeah, that, that's how I see myself, too. <laughs> yeah, a partial asshole. But And there are a lot of really great guys and also some really great journalists. I can mention Luke Thomas, uh, Ben Fox, Chad Dundas, um, uh, Ariel Hawani, who really have been striking the what I think is the appropriate note of, of shock and censure. Um, but for the most part, what we have seen uh, is a servile and bootlicking class of so-called journalists who've been publishing puff pieces saying, well, you know, Dana White has been under a lot of pressure lately for fuck's sake. Like this is the fifties. Right. Like, Oh yeah. My husband hits me sometimes, but you know, he works really hard. Like how fucking retrograde is this? And the fans, you want to talk about retrograde, the Mm. number of fans, many of them, admirers of one andrew tate oh god coming out of the woodwork to be like hey equal rights means equal lefts if you can fucking believe that sorry i'm going off on your show ladies and gentlemen of the podcast audience please understand i'm not usually this much of a hothead but i have been chewing on this for several Mm. days and i think that might be it for me in the sport of mixed martial arts. I'm also a boxing fan, and I'm just sort of like, you know, boxing is a dirty business too. Mm. But at least there, when someone um, does something really awful, usually people will say so. And sometimes there are even consequences. But MMA is like a banana republic ruled by some kind of Trumpian um, sort of, what's the word? strong man hmm. um you know and nothing Phil, ever can, happens over there can, to can, hold can, anybody to account and it's making me crazy because to get to the theme yeah we were talking about the beast in me yes this is a whole world of men who have decided to go full beast wow and i wonder and i and, and i got a little quote for you this is from uh Dr. Johnson, he of the famous dictionary. Yes. I read this when I was looking up something else. He who makes a beast of himself gets rid of the pain of being a man. Mm. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we see here. Mm. And so I have been chewing on this. I've been been so mad about this. And I kind of have nowhere to put my rage about it. And so this is my gift to you. Thank you. Oh, this is a tremendous <laughs> gift. I'm, 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 I feel blessed right now. <laughs> do, do you know, or, or do, I should say maybe, do we know how someone like Joe Rogan has responded to this? Has he been silent? Has he said something? And I know he's kind of a controversial figure. He's a huge podcaster. I believe he works for the UFC or has some type of role. Yeah. I, I'm curious what sure. he said. Well, he's been he's been commentating for UFC for years and years, and now, of course, he's he's huge and rich and right. so on. And he just, and he's one person who doesn't actually need to be afraid of Dana White, except I think he and Dana White are just like really good friends. Mm. And my impression is that uh, Rogan has said nothing one way or the other. I feel like I would have heard about it if okay. he had. Okay, but I suspect, suspect he's one of those. Um, uh, one of those uh, people who's hiding under a big pile of coats waiting for this all to blow over. Got you. Okay, man. So, okay, Phil, I, I would love to kind of get into this song that, that you recommended we kind of like orbit around for this episode, The Beast in Me by Nick Lowe. 
But before we do that, can I ask you a question about your childhood? You can ask. Okay. <laughs> no, don't worry. I, I know in our exchanges, we both admitted to each other that we're very private people. So I'm going to honor that. You can honor that for me if, if you choose. Um, the, the question that I'm curious about is, and this is something I've asked other guests before, is was there, whether it's a philosophical or spiritual or religious kind of background that maybe shaped the trajectory of your life? And is that still something that you hold to? Have you grown out of it? I, I just always like to know where my guests kind of come from. It's a good question. It's a good question for me because I'm, I've been remarkably inconsistent in my commitments over the years. There gotcha. are very few things I really and truly think now uh, that I really and truly thought when I was like 20. Okay. Um, and, I love that. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's good. I thought I was <laughs> confessing a, 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 a feeling. <laughs> no, I, 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 maybe I love it because I think that's me as well. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, so it's so sometimes it's a little difficult to find like a kind of a, a thread. But, you know, if there's one thing I will say that um, has been a consistent and has never changed, um, it has been a very strong orientation to art and mm. not just um, not just this art or that art, but the kind of the idea of art, like what art is abstractly. And perhaps this is unsurprising because podcasts that I do with JF Martel, Weird Studies, is an arts and philosophy podcast. And um, unsurprising that that we should do a podcast about the thing that we are most passionate about and that he and I have most in common. But it's a sort of, um, you know, for me, okay, so one thing I actually talked about on um, one of our shows, actually Patreon Extra recently, was an experience I had when I was quite young, like okay. in elementary school, like grade two, three, four, five. Um, I'm not sure what was wrong with me. I grew up in the 70s in northern Ontario, which was not exactly a place where it was crawling with like sophisticated mental health practitioners. So it's not like I really knew what was going on, but there was something kind of wrong with me. I sometimes wonder if it was like, yeah, I don't know what it was. I'm not going to try and self-diagnose, but for whatever reason, it was very hard for me to connect with other people and with the classes with like at my school, sure. I was this really weird very isolated little kid who didn't respond appropriately to, you know, academic prompts or social ones for that matter. Um, and um, I was put in the learning disabled group at school for several years, which again, this is Sudbury in the seventies. Um, it's not like Sudbury was a bastion of pedagogical progressivism sure. at the time. Um, and so you know, learning disabled was not actually any kind of enriched program. It was just sending the dumb kids into a different room so they would cease to bother the normal kids. Mm. This happened several years, and it gave me an insight into the cruelty of adults, who some of whom positively delighted in um, uh, in um, removing privileges from the dumb kids. Mm. And then, because there was a teacher 
at the school who thought that I was perhaps put in the wrong place, insisted that I be tested by somebody from the board of education. And then they decided that I wasn't a dumb kid. I was a smart kid. Mm-hmm. And then they put me in a different group, which has given me a lifelong awareness of how arbitrary our social judgments of one another are and how much just some authority just says you're a certain kind of person. Everybody without exception will believe it. And yeah. um, for you, in that way, which has given me a certain skepticism about authority uh, throughout mm. my life. God knows why I ended up being a university professor. But... <laughs> That's interesting. But in any event, all of this, I'm sorry, it's a very roundabout way of um, no, I love uh, it. Answer, Please keep going answering then. your question. Um, I just sort of felt like it, the, all the parts in me didn't fit; they didn't work. But then I started playing music. Mm. I started playing piano seriously when I was nine. Okay, and. Um, which if you want to be a classical pianist is actually kind of late, sort of like being a gymnast or something. You want to go to the Olympics, you better already have a bunch of medals in your bedroom by the age of six or whatever. But like, you know, and clearly I didn't become a a professional classical pianist, but, um, but I was very, very serious uh, as a piano student for a while. And it was when I started really playing a lot of music that I felt like all those discordant bits that didn't quite fit in me knitted together into something. Mm. Like doing art, playing music, you know, it just integrated the whole me, you know, my body, which felt like uncoordinated and, and, and awkward, you know, my, my mind, which went every which way in which I couldn't discipline, um, hence being stuck in the LD program, sure. uh, my emotions and f- you know, it gave me the presentiment of something else, call it soul or spirit. And somehow there's this thing I could do playing piano that would take all of those things and bring them together and make a single whole entity of them. Wow. And the power of not just music, but art generally, you know, art as such, the thing that humans do in making art, the power of art to communicate to people, but to reach inside them, to remap them, to make you, I'm not even going to say necessarily better. I don't know, maybe I was better when I was like a weird little kid going every which way, but like, <laughs> I feel like it, that the practice of art helped me become who I am. Mm. I remember thinking that really, really from like age 12, suddenly feeling like a switch had been flicked on in my brain. And I'm just like, wow, this is who I am. I remember having that feeling. That is, that feeling has never left me. Okay. Um, and, you know, also, the thing with like picking up boxing for me was also realizing this, like it's not just the practice of art. It can be practice of other things. Mm. So, you know, boxing is a kind of an art in a way, but practice, you know, what you do as a musician, what you do as um, a Zen Buddhist, which I also am. um, And what you do as a boxer or an athlete is practice. And that practice is something that orients the human to their humanity um you know so in recent years i've expanded thinking of that to not just the practice of art but just practice as such so very roundabout answer to your question yeah if i were to say the one constant whether i've intellectualized it this way or not throughout my life nevertheless the 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 constant that has been the greatest power for good in my life has been practice. Does it make sense? Makes sense. And it's beautiful. And thank you for sharing that. That was a great answer. 
So, so Phil, when I, when I reached out and, you know, we were trying to kind of figure out what we would talk about, can you maybe give a little bit of background as to maybe why you chose this song, Beast in Me? What, what maybe came up for you? And I mean, I thought it was a great choice and I can't wait to get into it, but I'm just curious kind of the process behind maybe why you chose it. Well, this probably answered question why I have been boiling with rage and mm. unable to let it go for several days, um, really since the new year about this whole UFC thing and okay. why I just like bust out with it right away before we even had a chance to get started <laughs> properly in, in proper, proper monomaniacal fashion. Um, is because I, I suspect because what I see in all of these men, these weak men, mm giving up on their humanity giving up on being men mm. and just enjoying the sensation of being a beast throw off the that that troublesome cumbersome heavy limiting uh cloak of your humanity yeah doff it and allow the beast within to be who you are that's the thing that that drives me nuts is seeing that because I know that that's in me too. Mm. Right. Absolutely. All, you know, talking about like self-regulation through the practice of music or boxing or whatever, um, trying to be better, better than what? <laughs> better for whom? Right. What, yeah. what, what does that mean? There is a certain a basic just being a person there is something it's like to be a person and that is a good thing mm. there's a good thing it's like to be a person do you know what i mean oh yeah absolutely that resonates for sure and and that thing doesn't just happen <laughs> right you gotta that is what you practice and why do that? Because there is this part of you, this beast in you. But the thing about it is it gets more complicated than that because you can't just keep the beast chained up in the damp basement of your psyche. Mm. Right. Which was my approach for a long time. Sure. Um, idea of like you crush those parts of you that you don't like. Mm. And in, um, Certainly, certainly in the time that I've I've uh, been a practicing Zen Buddhist, which is probably the the most important, um, which has been about fifteen years, and that has okay. been the most important kind of input in my kind of worldview, my philosophy sure. uh, as an adult. Something I didn't have as a kid, but something that's um, probably the you know most important orientation of my my life now. Um, you know, since since um, beginning Zen practice, you know, one thing that you really come face to face with is just sort of like, you're not trying to, I mean, just, okay. For people who maybe have never meditated or don't know what it's about or what yeah. Buddhism is about, like, you know, your practice for the most part is sitting in, med in, in meditation. Um, and uh, there are other practices, but the big one is Zazen, which is Zen meditation. Right. And in Zazen, it's like a basic mindfulness thing where you let whatever thoughts are in your head. You're not trying to push them down or repress them. You're not trying to not think 
because that's impossible anyway. <laughs> right. Um, you're just kind of letting them be what they are, but you're not like grabbing onto them. You're not trying to identify yourself. You're not saying like that thought is me, which is normally what we do. Right. Sure. Um, so from that point of view, that, that gives, that gives you kind of a, a, a means to understand why repression is not necessarily the best idea. And there's any number of reasons why, right. We can put it in a union way and talk about the shadow right you know the shadow is what's cast by your figure by who you are and like the bit that you don't acknowledge the bit behind you um the, the bit that's not in the light that's the you know the bit that you disavow that's your shadow and it does some real damage if you mm. can, if you don't know it's there um and uh, and so you have to get real with the darker parts of yourself with the beast in me oh yeah and like I said, keeping it chained up in the basement doesn't work. That's how you get a shadow. Mm. What what happens when that thing breaks loose? Now you really got problems. Oh yeah. Right? Oh yeah. Absolutely. And so, like that's, I mean, to put it in a zeny way, that's a koan. That's a mm. puzzle for us to figure out. How do you deal with that beast in you without? just capitulating to it mm. how do you allow it it say in that inner in the inner congress um or the inner parliament uh without it simply wrecking shop without it just sort of destroying everything sure there's um and yeah the, sorry no 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 there's a there's a spiritual author henry nowen who was really influenced by like carl jung and he would talk about befriending the parts of us that we want to disown does that language resonate at all? Is, is there a place for befriending this or is that too friendly? <laughs> Might be a bit too friendly for okay, me. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, the beast in you uh, is maybe something you might not want to actually be friends with. <laughs> beast in me doesn't respond well to kindness. Okay. But at the same time though, also this is another, this is like maybe a kind of a dark teaching of of fight sports of something that you get from actually training in yeah. fight sports from sparring and like having an actual fight and you know it's the kind of fight where you shake hands before and after you touch gloves uh it's the kind of fight where there's you know your coach is telling you okay throw it 50 percent, so you're not just wailing on each other trying to knock each other out it's very controlled um you know there's a timer blah 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 um it's a sport it's not a fight but it's a fight. Mm. And there is something to be said for getting in a fight. Find out what, where is that beast in me? It comes mm. out when you're fighting. Mm. And in a fight, that beast in you is your friend. It's to some extent, like you can't just wild out. You can't just allow the beast to have the the final say because i mean it's often pointed out like if you fight angry you're going to get knocked out mm. um or you're going to have some trouble right it isn't about emotion but it is about this little this little part of you that's just whose whole attitude is out of my way it's about me wow you know oh yeah and and there's a part of um there's a part of probably everybody, but I'm a man, so can only talk about being a man. Sure. Um, 
there's part of a man that is that. And one way or another, you have to make your peace with that. But also, there are situations in your life where the beast in you gets to have a say. Mm. And the whole domain of fight sports, just to try and tie it back to where, where I started, sure. is a domain, the whole domain of martial arts is a kind of alchemical operation, mm. you know, an alchemy. You will start with, you, know, you might start with literal shit, with valueless stuff, right? with, with aid animals, with stuff that you don't even want to touch. You don't even want to think about it. But the whole business with alchemy is that you're performing operations upon this material where little bit by little bit, you're refining it, you're purifying it, you're bringing something out of it that is latent and possible. And the ideal of alchemy is to start with the lowest um, the lowest trash stratum and to end up with the, the highest, mm. right? And martial arts at its best is all about that. You take the, 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 the blackened putrescence part of yourself, the, the stuff that goes into what the alchemists, uh, classical alchemists would call the Negrito. Mm. Um, and you work with that. And you end up with a lump of gold. And that's the inner transformation, the inner alchemy that happens with something like martial arts, where you are letting the beast in you have a role, but you are, but it's ringed around with prohibitions, with things that sublimate that raw violence and turn it into something. Gotcha. Um, and so the beast in me, you know troublesome companion a troublesome lifelong companion um it informs a lot of my the, the idea of there being a beast in me forms a lot of my understanding of the kind of growth i've had to do and the kind mm. of growth i continue to want to do um the beast in me stands as a perennial challenge to understand all the parts of ourselves as being in some way necessary, even the ones we can hardly bear to look at. Sure. Um, can, 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 I, can, 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 can I ask you this? It has a lot to do with being a man, at least to me. Sorry, yeah. dude. No, 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 no. Just, just because I know you yeah. love you and JF love going into metaphysics and, um, you know, psychology, the, the, the we could almost even say like the meta psychology. Do, do, do you have any theories as to what the beast actually is? Like as you, as you frame it and think about it, you know, g going philosophically, metaphysically, what, what is the beast in you? Do you have any kind of riffs on that? Well, it's me in it. Mm. Um, there's a terrific meditation on the beast in all of us. Um, in a novel by Ursula Le Guin called Wizard of Earthsea. You read it? No, I haven't. Yeah, we did. We did an episode of it on it ages ago. I couldn't tell you which one, but in any of it's a really, really good story and not very long. And uh, anybody listening to your podcast, I would, I would suggest they read it. It's, it's a terrific story, mm -hmm. but it's about a, a powerful young sorcerer named Ged who goes to a wizard's college. And by the way, um, what's her name? The Harry Potter author, um, J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling, um, yeah. Basically lifted much of the idea of um, the whole Harry Potter universe from Wizard of Earthsea, but be that as it may, <laughs> um, Wizard of Earthsea is a lot better than Harry Potter, in my humble opinion. Um, 
But in any event, in uh, Wizard of Versity, this very powerful wizard named Ged, he's very powerful, but he's rather immature. And he's baited into a duel of magic by another student. Uh, and Ged wins but at the cost of accidentally summoning this shadow monster that claws him and maims him and um, um, uh, creates like uh, just, um, you know, ripples of destruction through this community, through the school. And Ged, um, when he recovers from his mauling is uh, broken, you know, loses his confidence he could hardly do magic for a while mm. um he's so afraid of the power that he's released he has all this power and he's so afraid of this witless uh reactive angry release of his power that has caused all these problems for himself and for everybody around him and at first, he just wants to go somewhere and hide and just like live as a hermit. And then this shadow that he unleashes turns out it's still out there in the world and it's hunting him. Mm. And so for a long time in this book, he's like trying to he's trying to avoid it. He keeps meeting this thing. It takes over other people, turns them into zombies and, and attacks him. Um, and finally... He decides he can't run anymore and he has to turn around and chase this thing. And then there's like a video actually of a massive attack song. I forget the name of the song, but the video does this. It's a guy who's being chased by a horde of men until he turns around and he starts chasing them and then they run. And that's mm. what happens with Ged's shadow. And eventually he defeats the shadow by embracing it, by becoming one with it. Mm sorry spoiler but but and the way i described it that maybe doesn't sound like a hell of a story but it's really good mm. i strongly recommend it um so what where is that what is that shadow where does it come from well it comes you know that the wizards at the school tell shadow that he's summoned a being of immense power from somewhere so deep even they don't know where it comes from it doesn't obey them it doesn't obey anybody's magical power. It seems to be massively powerful and interested only in one person, which is Ged. Mm. And in, in the end, it's not him, but it kind of is him. I like that. I like that way of understanding the beast in us. And to me, it's very psychologically acute. Mm. Um, so I was sort of kidding around when I'm like, well, it's me in it, but like kind of is. But it's a part of me that comes from somewhere deep and dark and mysterious and nobody really knows, mm. man, from some pit, from some dark place that came up. Yeah, see, and, and I think one of the things that frustrates me about certain renditions of, uh, let's just say, modern masculinity is that it's it's wrapped in this, you know, clothing around certainty and control and, you know, it looks like this every time and you have to be this type of person and the vision that you're articulating is shrouded in mystery and you know a kind of unknowing and and a lack of control in some ways and that that just it's scary as fuck and you know troubling but also there's something about it that really resonates with me yeah it is scary um 
But yeah, I mean, this kind of gets us talking a little bit about some of the things for, that JF and I try to do in Weird Studies, which is, you know, whole worldview basically founded on the idea of like, I don't know, you know, that that desire for epistemic closure is, of course, understandable. It's a means of exerting power sure. in the world. And there are many, many situations in which I am not content with mystery. I do, in fact, want to know the answer. <laughs> Um, if I've got a medical thing, like some ache and pain, mm. you know, I want to know what that is. I'm not content to be like, Hey man, who can tell? Sure. Universe is a strange place. Sure. But when we're talking, yeah. But when we are talking about, um, things that border on the metaphysical, like, you know, the beast in me and where does that come from? And it is a deep question. Mm. And we're trying to retain some of the sense of awe before it as 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 we feel before, you know, an, an abyss opening at our feet, if you imagine like, you know, climbing in the mountains. Yeah. Being like a vast abyss at your feet, or or staring up at a scary starry sky. I guess these are like very commonplace examples of um uh, what Edmund Burke called the sublime, mm. that, that that kind of beauty, that thrill we get from things that are beautiful, but also scary, like overwhelming and immensely bigger than ourselves. There is a kind of sublimity in yeah. the human. You know, there's a sublimity in man. Um, that that leads me to ask, you know, even looking at the lyrics when 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 Lowe says, you know, the beast in me is caged by frail and fragile bonds, restless by day and by night, rants and rages at the stars. God help the beast in me. I, I think about you know the religious impulse and, and was just curious how the beast in us, in us men, is related to, to God, whatever the fuck that is, to the, the religious impulse that's been, I think, with humanity for as, as long as we can understand. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's easy to get this wrong what I'm about to say, but it is sure. a religious mystery. Now, yeah, when I say religion, uh, even religious people don't like that word. Right, right, right. right. Because it has such a, uh, an, um, a ring of authoritarianism of like you think of religion and you think of all the thou shalt and shalt nots of sure. this religion and that religion and all of the um, – idiotic sectarian conflict that that accompanies intolerance and bigotry etc but when i say religion i feel like we need a sterner word than spiritual because spiritual mm. somehow always implies you can have it your way right I, mean, I don't any offense to anybody but when when people say i'm more spiritual than religious i think often that means like I have the same feelings, the sentiment of something vaster that includes but transcends me as a religious person. I'm just not hung up on the rules and mm -hmm. there's that thou shalt and thou shalt not, right? Sure. Um, but it's that, but I want to focus not on the me part, but the it part, the, the, the that sense of something that transcends. Right. That's the that's what I, that's what I'm getting at when I use the word religious. Mm. The the thing that you know the 
the most common etymology of the word religion is it, it comes from Latin religare, which means to tie back like when you're, you know, lashing grapevines or hop vines or something to a trellis. Mm. That's a religare. Um, that religion is is the tying back of myself to that thing, that transcendent thing, that thing that's bigger than me. Sure. Um, and so that's what I mean when I say a religious impulse. It's not to do with churches and robes and funny hats and right. all the rest of it. It's that impulse, that feeling there's something bigger and I want to tie myself to it because that is a good thing. Mm. I'm not a good thing on my own, but that's a good thing. Mm. Um, and yeah, when we're talking in that those terms, we're talking about forces. We could call them entities or beings if you like, or we could call them forces if you like. But, um, you know, we're in a world of gods now. doesn't have to be, you know, the, the great big capital G God, right? I right. sometimes say, I don't believe God, but I certainly believe in the gods. <laughs> yes, <We're> well all. <laughs> said. <laughs> and all of these things in us, not just the beast in me, but like the lover in me, mm. the artist in me, the father in me, um, Etc. I could keep going on. Sure. Those are gods. Beast in me is a god too. A terrible and dark god, but a god nonetheless. Mm. No, that's so fascinating. And and then I'm I'm just I don't have an answer, but I'm I'm now thinking if the beast in me is a god, and, and I would resonate with that way of framing it, in what way do I seek to relate to it or maybe even worship it or sacrifice to it you know if we kind of carry that metaphor a little bit further i I don't know if that would be appropriate but it's at least getting me to think a little bit what what's my relation to it you know that's that that is a very important question and my one thing i've learned to do in recent years is to actually ask it Mm. actually ask it so um this is something that there's um I wish I could remember names. I'm getting old, can't remember, <laughs> but there's some famous psychotherapist who um came up with uh, a kind of therapy known as voice dialogue okay. work. I I'm not familiar with that. Man, that's interesting. Yeah, and somewhere in here. Can you hold on for just a moment? Oh, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm going to get something off my shelf over there. Yeah, not a problem at all. One of the things I, uh, one, one thing I collect is um, card decks, decks particularly of Oracle decks and tarot decks. Um, nice. Things that people consult in order to get quick answers to questions and this is one i picked up recently called selves in a box by j tamar stone oh, interesting um, stone might be the name not i don't think it's this person but might be another person named stone who came up with voice dialogue work okay um in any event sorry still vague on the details but this contains a whole bunch of cards and all of the cards 
are cards of different cells. So, for instance, I think find an example. Oh, for fuck's sake! <laughs> too many, too too many of those. Too too many of those. Like, if you're interested in this deck, maybe you'd be interested in this other deck. Um, okay, here's one. They're just the first card I picked up. Sure. The visionary. Um, the visionary. Right. On occasion, I've had good results. Being like, I'm feeling some really confused, strong feelings, and I don't know, or I'm doing something that's a little weird to me. Like, why am I doing this? I don't under in a situation where I find myself behaving in a way that I don't understand. Mm. Um, I will sometimes pull cards from this deck, and I've had some real success with it. Saying like, who are the selves? Who are the the beings in me? The little gods in me. Keep in mind, they're not just personal gods. They're not just gods in me. They're gods in you, too. Mm. By you, I mean anybody who's, like, watching this or listening to it. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes, you know, you can do a pull, and it's like, ah, so that's who's making me flip out right now. It's the visionary or whatever, you know, some some part of me, right? Um, so, anyway, all of this to say... You know, what what are we to do with this? Like one thing that this voice dialogue work is about is actually talking to those parts of the self. And I discovered this for myself quite by accident one night when I couldn't sleep and I woke up and my heart was hammering. I was having kind of a panic attack. Mm. And I'm not going to go into the, it was a situation in my life where I was stepping up to a new level of responsibility and I was flipping out. Gotcha. And, and I was, and I meditated to kind of cool out and it wasn't helping. And, and I was just sort of like, I just kind of asked, like, whatever this thing was that was making my heart hammer, uh, I was like, oh, okay, well, who are you? And what do you want? And I'm not exactly going to try and explain exactly how I got answers or how I knew that they were real answers and not just me talking to myself, sure. but like, my conscious mind saying things that my conscious mind wants to hear. Yeah. But suffice it to say, like it was not actually my, it was not rage or anger, but fear that I ended up talking to. And I remember asking my fear and again, I'm glossing over a lot of details. Like how did I get answers sure. that I can paraphrase in our conversation? But um, at one point it was just sort of like, well, what's up with you fear? Hmm. what's going on why you know why why are you here so why are you so present why are you so much here right now and the answer was surprising me it was like you and me we used to be beautiful Hmm. and now you just keep me chained up in that damn basement (laughs) that was surprising Wow. You'd think that I would, having a conversation with myself, you'd think I would know what my answers would be, but yeah. I was surprised by that. And I have since done this kind of work in a more organized and, and um, like a more structured way, working sure. with somebody who actually does this kind of thing. Um, but the fact is that you can, you know, it, there will always be a mystery about these entities swarming in our insides, who they are and what they want, what our destiny is, blah, blah, blah. If I knew all that stuff, man, I'd be the one with a podcast. <laughs> you know, on, I, I don't uh, want to be like... On, re- on psychological matters. There you go. I, I don't want to be too reductionistic, but I feel like for a lot of men, the 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 errors are to either 
overly identify with the beast and just let it take over or to suppress or repress it and deny its existence. I, what, what, so. I, what, what, what I hear from you is figuring out a way to creatively relate to it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Precisely. Um, one way or another, you got to get on. It's yeah. part of you. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people's answer is just sort of like to just denial and just like, that's not part of me. But as you say, that's one of two possible extremes. The other being completely identifying with the beast. And that was the thing I was talking about with that um, uh, Samuel Johnson quote from earlier that, right. um, you know, a man gets rid of, um, of the man part of him. Yes. Um, you know, it becomes a beast in order to get rid of the pain, the burden of being a man. Mm. Um, that's the other side. That's the opposite, the 180 degree opposite of denying you even have that part. And yet those two can end up looking remarkably similar. Absolutely. Right? Yes. Okay, Phil, can, can, can I read another part of the song? And Because I just wanted to hear. What, what, okay, so he says... This beast in me tries to kid me that it's just a teddy bear or even somehow managed to vanish in the air. And that is when I must be aware of the beast in me that everybody yeah. knows. What 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 comes to mind when you hear that? Do, do you have a sense of, of what he was trying to communicate? Not that there's one thing, but... Well, part of it, it also is this is a song. And so the melody the way the melody works with the, the words there is really cool. Mm. This is a bridge, right? This is like, um, you know, what jazz musicians would call the bridge or the middle eight, the channel, um, because pop songs very often have very repetitive form where you have a, a phrase, let's call it A, and then you repeat it, so it's A-A. And then the bridge or the middle eight or whatever is going to be like the bit that is a different theme. It's a different tune. So we could say that's B. And then after that, we're going to have a return to the thing we heard at the beginning. So you might end up with a, a structure that's sort of like A-A-B-A. Mm. Technical term for that is lyric binary, by the way. Um, I am a musicologist. That's nice. what I do. Drop the what fucking mic, so, man. <laughs> <laughs> so of course I'm going to talk about song form. But like the middle eight, the channel, the, 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 um, you know, this this contrasting B section, this is often where we're going to change up the mood a little bit, maybe lighten the mood a little bit, right? Mm. And so here, with a kind of insouciance, like the way the melody is flipping around, he's like, sometimes it tries to kid me, like, it's just a ted teddy bear. Change up the mood. Mm. The music lightens a little bit and always or somehow even managed to vanish in the air, right? The song changes its mind. Just as we're hearing, like, sometimes you think you've changed your mind. I'm a new person. I'm a new man now. Right. I'll never drink again. I'll never hit my wife again. Blah, 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 all that stuff, right? Sure. I, just for the record, in case anybody wants to uh, quote me out of context, I've never hit my wife. I'm talking about <laughs> fuck Dana White. <laughs> yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> uh, fuck that guy. Um but uh, no, that's not it. That's not it. That's the whistling past the graveyard part of the song. Mm. 
right? Where the song itself, the way the melody hangs on our ears telling us, oh, hey, you know, it's not so bad. Oh, no, it is. Mm. It's like, and that is when I must beware of the beast in me. I love the way that comes back. I do too. There's some tricky enjambment going on with the way it's written, which I'm not going to bore you all like trying to explain or, or, or you just try to figure out in my head. Um, Do you think there's something to some people call it the, the Mr. Nice guy syndrome or, you know, in therapy, my experience when, when, when there's men that are really kind of repressing certain things that that's when I'm most terrified of the beast in them, <laughs> you know, coming out in some of the ways that you were describing. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it can get unpredictable, can it? Mm. Absolutely. I can give you an, I can give you an example from my own life. I please uh, if you feel some, comfortable sharing, sure. Sure. Some years ago, well, I I shared this in front of more than 100 people, so <laughs> there you go. I've already done feeling embarrassed about this. I've had to process this. So this is a <laughs> A big undergraduate music history class that I sometimes teach. I teach at Indiana University at the Jacobs School of Music, one of the largest, most prestigious schools of music in the world. <laughs> um, and so this is an undergraduate music history class. There's more than 100 people in there. And um, one day people were just squirrely and they're talking and talking. And so I'm like, I usually am like, all right, let's get going. And, you know, I'm pretty loud. And so, like, people see that, they hear it, they sure. focus in. And this one day, um, they just weren't. And it was like I was invisible. People just kept talking and I'm sort of saying louder and louder, all right, we're going to get going. Okay, we're going to get going. And um, I wasn't in a bad mood that day by any means. Felt pretty good. Um, but all of a sudden, this blind rage just overtook me possessed me it was as if um like imagine that i'm a imagine that i'm like um like some kind of robot mac right like i'm a, a man-shaped robot <laughs> and there's this guy inside me who's talking to you right now my conscious rational intellect um that's pulling the levers and making me move my arms and talk and so on and it's as if uh the beast in me just barged into the control room, pushed that guy off to one side, grabbed the mic and yelled. And let me tell you, I'm loud. When I get mad, I can get loud. I yelled something like, shut the fuck up. Jesus fucking Christ. What's wrong with you? Something I, like my that. fantasy of that was that you had yelled motherfuckers. Shut the hell up. <laughs> close. Okay. Close, close. And I don't swear in front of my undergraduates. I do swear more than I should probably in front of graduate students, but try to keep it clean for the undergrads. This was un untypical of me, right? This was, um, uh, this was, uh, uncharacteristic behavior. Um, and it was just the sheer intensity of this. Mm. This was like a million volts of electricity discharged in one second. It was like a bolt of lightning. And, the shocked silence, mm. this sort of V-shaped wake of silence that followed this moment of violence. And it was, and just as quickly as the beast grabbed the mic, 
dropped the mic and left, leaving good old Phil to like try and figure out <laughs> to save the situation. Now that sounds like I'm trying to doff the responsibility. Oh, it wasn't me. It was the beast in me right. that was very rude and abusive to a room full of students. Um, I immediately apologized and then continued to apologize for a while. Um, obviously some students were quite upset and I had to, uh, and I, and, you know, and rightly had to apologize because it's totally unprofessional to do something like that. Mm. Um, but you know, I had to think a lot about that because there's also, I'm like, yeah, but okay. Why, why did the beast decide to grab the mic at that particular moment? Uh, because on some level I was sick of being disrespected. Wow. You know, teaching that class, a, a required course, everybody has to take it. It's quite difficult. It's a difficult class. It happens at the end of people's curriculum. So they're trying, just trying to finish this very demanding degree. And this asshole is trying to make my life more difficult. It's a tough situation. Nobody chose to take that class. They have to. It's a required course. Yeah. And so managing your relationship with students in that can be tricky. And you have to be you have to be humble, mm. you know, and you have to understand like this is not the fifties. You can't just be the Prussian military officer type right. professor who comes in and screams at people and kicks people out of the class and locks the door so people can't come in late and stuff like that. Like, you don't do that anymore. And I mean, I wouldn't want to anyway because that's like kind of a being an asshole. Right, right. And and we've already identified that you're just a partial asshole. So I'm only a partial asshole. That's right. <laughs> so on the one hand, you can't do that. But then at the same time, like, you also can't just let people walk all over you. Mm. Um, not, and I'm not saying that from point of view of like, you know, you got to show them what's what. You got to right. show them who's it's for you. Like you can't be untrue to yourself. If you're feeling like you're being disrespected, you have to find some way to communicate that you have to, you have to actually do the work in the classroom to let people know, like, this isn't appropriate. This mm. is how we're going to go. We're going to do this going forth. This is how we're not going to do it. There's proper ways to do this right. and screaming, shut the fuck up is not one of them. I wish to emphasize that, but I realize like I'm actually a somewhat conflict averse person. I don't like fighting with people for all I've enjoyed, like, you know, learning how to box or whatever. I actually, I'm not a combative person. And so what's easy for me is actually to get too much into a sort of an agreeable, like, okay, well, I'm going to let that go. I'm going to let that go. I'm going to let that go. But there's this one part of me that just the whole time is like, this is bullshit and isn't having it. Mm. And I could decide, well, you're just going to have to calm down. Right. Right. But what I can't do is just ignore it and just ignore it and just ignore it because at a certain point one day that beast in me is just going to be like, okay, we've tried doing this the easy way. Now we're going to do it the hard way. Mm. We're going to do it the way. And the feeling of like allowing myself to be to go, go along, get along, it was not ultimately even about that class. It had to do with like larger things to do with my relationship to academia, a lot of resentments that I was beginning to form about academia which to be honest that's why for me i mean jeff has his own reasons for doing weird studies but why i wanted to start doing weird studies was to basically 
basically vocational therapy to have the kind of conversations that I wanted to have, that I got into academic work to have, and that I felt were getting harder and harder to have mm. with the, the, and the neoliberalization of the academy. That's a whole different conversation that I don't want to have right now. Sure. But um, it had to do with a lot of that, a lot of feeling of like that I was not living authentically. Mm. That I was trying to making to make myself say that there's no problem when in fact there was a problem. So I like so, it. So if you don't deal with those kinds of things, yeah, you might get a little visit from the beast. Yeah, I have found this to be the case. Yeah, and this is you know just to think about a different metaphor. I'm, I'm what's coming up for me is as we explore what it means to relate to the beast. I, I know we didn't love the idea of kind of befriending it, but. Maybe there's a place to appropriately feed it, which which I don't yeah. think means letting it grow into this monstrous proportion where it then lashes out like like Dana White and other fuckholes. But it's it's <laughs> feed it's feeding it so that it's kind of taking care of and doesn't control you. Maybe that's yeah. too simplistic, but there no. might be something there. There's ways of. There are a lot of different relationships you can have with people that are cooperative relationships that are not exactly friendships. Okay. Oh, this is good. You know, you can have product. You don't have to be friends with everybody, but I'd prefer not to be (laughs) (laughs) for some reason. It's not a, it's not a perfect image, but um, for some reason, what's popping in my head, probably actually, I'll tell you why it's popping in my head. The movie LA confidential, the opening scene is of Bud White, one of James Elroy's terrifying, hard-boiled, um, uh, like tough guy cop characters, beating the ever-living fuck out of a wife abuser. Mm. Uh, one of my favorite scenes. Um, I, uh, yeah, yeah, I've been th- and and perhaps unsurprisingly, have been thinking about that scene in recent days. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> 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 anyway later like it's about these two cops who hate each other and okay. even uh, try to destroy one another and realize that they're both actually being played by someone who, who's the real villain mm. and they end up um and they end up joining forces and the fact is that even at the end of the movie after they've taken down the bad guy they've you know gotten in a gunfight and you know somewhat the worst for wear or whatever like even for all that they're still not exactly friends but like but they fought this intense battle together and that's like close enough. You know what I mean? Maybe there's like a mutual respect. And, and I think, I think there's something to that, like learning to respect the beast within. I, I think that's one of the ways yes. to kind of tame it or manage it is fucking respecting yeah. that thing. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And it may not be your buddy. Right. Right. It may not be your favorite drinking buddy. <laughs> uh, probably shouldn't be. Right. But that dude's pretty good with his fists, mm. pretty good with a gun. You know what I mean? Oh, like, absolutely, I'm, Phil. I'm thinking no, no. of the character in the movie, yeah, not yeah, literally. Yeah. Sure, the gun. sure. I know, absolutely. Right. I'm a peaceful man, but, yeah. you know. No, same here. No, thinking about it metaphorically for sure. Now, now, now Phil, can, can we just look at the last part of the song? Because this was a piece that I, I didn't know how to make sense of it. I, I think you'll probably help me out. You know, when, when he says... That everybody knows they've seen him out dressed in my clothes, patently unclear if it's New York or New Year. God help the beast in me, the beast in me. What what is he talking about there? Do do you have any thoughts? 
It's so wonderfully unclear. Okay, okay. I, I, I was like, man, what the fuck is going on here? I want, I, again, I love the way it's set in music, where mm. they've seen him out there dressed in my clothes, patently unclear. I'm sorry, I have a terrible voice. Um, it's better than mine. <laughs> and then he's patently unclear, and there's a pause. And you, at first you think, they've seen him out there in my clothes, patently unclear. What does that mean? Mm. Think that people seeing the beast in my clothes is unclear. Unclear that it's me or him. But then the line actually turns out to be wrapped up in the next line, not the previous line. Gotcha. Patently unclear if it's New York or New Year. Right. That I love the way those words, patently unclear, just hang out. And they're like Janice's face. They look at the mm. backwards previous line and forward to the next line. And it's unclear if that's really me or if it's the beast. It's patently unclear if it's New York or New Year. It could be, you know, New York or New Year. I think of that as like occasions in which I might be out there wilding out, having myself a time. I'm in New York, big big city. It's New Year's Eve. Mm. Bright lights. Drinking, fast company, that play of shifting identities, shifting places and and um, places and times, patently unclear, all of it. Mm. The soup, the soup of experience, different things swimming in it, and the beast in me. Sometimes we're not clear where he is in all this, mm. what role he is playing at any given time. God help the beast in me. Wow. I think where there's a humility for me in that is, in my opinion, I don't know that there's a finality in terms of when I'm going to get rid of this beast. I don't think I'm actually ever going to get rid of the beast in me. He will continue to pop up, and and like like we've been talking about, I'm gonna have to continue to learn how to relate to him. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a book that we've been um, reading on uh, in installments on the podcast and Weird Studies uh, Meditations on the Tarot. Oh yeah, um, I'm, I'm I'm actually reading that. I I do a, another kind of based on your work. I'm, I. Actually, the the guy who painted the painting that's behind me, he he created a tarot deck, and uh, we, we're we're going through the major arcana on our podcast. Oh, that's so cool! And, and oh, that's uh, dope. Yeah, yeah, and, right. and I love the meditations on the tarot. It's amazing. Very wise book. Oh yeah, a very wise book. And I can't remember. It was we talked about this in one of our episodes, but I can't remember which card it was, which chapter. Um. I mean, it's a book of Christian esotericism. Uh, I'm not a Christian, but I find it very wise, and it actually mm. speaks to a lot of things in um, the religion that I am a part of, Buddhism. Um, but somewhere he's talking about the cross and the, the symbolism of the cross, and he talks about um, what it is to carry the cross, to bear the cross. Mm. And he's like, and he's talking about how in life, whether we're talking individuals or nations, there are enmities. There are conflicts that it seems like they are irresolvable. 
So he uses as an example of the standoff between the USA and the USSR because he wrote this in the 60s back in the heart of the Cold War. Yeah. But uh, we might say now maybe a kind of inveterate standoff between um, – you know, Trumpian, uh, like Trump followers, sure. for example, not just Republicans, but specifically the Trump parts of American conservatism. Right. And um, the most progressive uh, side of the Democratic Party. Right. Maybe in the middle, there's some room for crossover between people who are slightly right and slightly left. But like, obviously, as everybody knows, American politics are super polarized now. Oh, yeah. And it feels like all it is is the extremes, right? Sure. And they hate those extremes, hate each other, and they can't and they view everything in terms of who is winning and who is losing. Everything is judged in terms of whether our team is winning or their team is winning. And the goal if you are in a polarized situation like that is to win is to seek the absolute extermination of your enemy, not necessarily to have them all killed, but like you imagine perhaps that um, all the people in the tendency that you don't like are um, somehow going to be converted to your point of view, or they somehow are going to be dealt some final political blow where they will never again, um, enjoy political power or something. There's some fantasy in your head of mm. totally total winning and, and total losing that you play out that keeps you going. And yet, and this is the point that Fountain Tonberg, the author of Meditations on the Torah, makes, you will never get rid of them. Mm. The, the, the inveterate struggles in your life, I'm using a political metaphor here, but it can also be like everybody listening to me talking can probably think of at least one person in their life, you were like, whatever else happens, I will never be able to stand that person. I can never stay in the same room with that person. I'll never, ever have a kind word to say to or about that person. Tomberg's point, that person's not going away. Yeah. You will never completely win. Um, the uh, However much you might hate uh, Trump and his followers, and I, I really hate Trump. I really do. <laughs> Um, they're still going to be there tomorrow. Right. And now what? And, um, carrying the cross means carrying that burden, figuring out the, the thing, like you have these two opposite things, like they're at opposite axes to one another, irreconcilable. And yet somehow they have to be reconciled somehow. Yes. Do you think and, this and resonates those, with Heraclitus and, and his idea of polemos or war being the father of all things, that there's this intractable tension in, yeah. in, in, in our universe that, that we just can't get rid of? I, I'm sorry to, to interrupt you, but I, no, I, I, know, I know you guys love good. Heraclitus too. No, that's very good. You know, if you could somehow just cut all of that tension out, resolve the most stubborn antimonies in your life. Would you really want to? I don't that's think the so. Question that, that's the question that comes up with your, your invocation of Heraclitus sure, too. Sure. Because it is the conflict that produces, I mean, why would I need to get to understand myself better if I didn't need to have to deal with this fucking beast? <laughs> right, right, right. You know? <laughs> yes. If the tension goes slack, then 
I don't know. Then there's no growth. There's no movement. Nothing interest. Nothing interesting ever happens. Nothing mm. ever happens. Mm. And so that's a confusing thing about being a human, right? Is understanding that all of this trouble, all this suffering, is in some way not a bug. It's a feature. Mm. It's necessary in some mm. way. And so the beast must be necessary too. I just can't stand the motherfucker, though. I know. I figured that one out. I know. See, I, I, I always I, now, you know, I'm, I'm 37. I've done my own kind of in-depth therapy. I mean, I sit with people all day long, working with their psyches, and, and I think I've come to the conclusion that if a person can't say what you just said, I hate this motherfucker, they haven't really had an encounter with the beast. They, they, they're just kind of made playing around, but uh, until you really get close to it you, you you don't really know it <laughs> yeah not a teddy bear it's not a teddy bear An actual bear right right which is scary as fuck <laughs> <laughs> yeah who is that is that like that movie grizzly man about the guy who thought he could just like be super friendly with the grizzly bears until they ended up eating him I'm not familiar with that, but that sounds terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. Well, again, I'm, 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 I'm lousy on the details, but that would be an example, perhaps a, a, uh, an anecdote that would literalize what we're talking about. Sure. Sure. Okay. So Phil, this has been incredible. I want to be sensitive to your time. I'm just curious if there's any last thing, either from the song or just from your own perspective that you could kind of end with, in terms of thinking about, you know, the beast in me, the beast in us, the the beast in men. And obviously it applies to more than just those that identify as male, but that is kind of the scope of the podcast is trying to help help men think about some of these issues. Listen to the song because the thing I love about the song is actually the weary compassion Mm. that drips from every note of that song. Wow, weary compassion. Dude, I love that. Compassion and patience are what it called for. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Phil, would you mind just ending with like the line of this podcast, which is just continue the conversation? Continue the conversation. I can think of no better way to end. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. 
I'd love to connect with you. Whether that means you sign up for therapy or you send me an email asking a question or maybe even explore what it would look like to get on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to find me on my website at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. Or you can just Google me and there you'll find my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. You can also go to the website of the practice I work at, where I'm the Leeds Men's Counselor. That's katiecounselingformen.com. I hope that you guys are inspired by what we explore today, and as always, continue the conversation.